Well, this is a unique Palm Sunday, to say the least. I don't know if I've ever had a normal Palm Sunday. What is normal anyways? I don't know anymore. <laughs> but it, this is a very unique Palm Sunday, and so I find it fitting then that the, the text that we read today is not a normal Palm Sunday text. Please turn to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48, so that you might read with me today. It is not about the triumphal entry. It's not about the people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. It's not about people gathering to see the king come into the city of God. It's none of those things today on this unique Palm Sunday, it is a sober affair, a solemn text, one to strike our hearts, and one that, by God's divine mercy, is very fitting for us today. So if you are able, if you are willing, please stand for the reading of God's word today in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. It says, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. This is the word of the Lord, and together we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come upon us now as we watch from our houses, from our living rooms, on our smartphones, on our tablets, on our TVs, wherever we might be, however we might be hearing these words today, I pray that your Holy Spirit might fall down upon us, God, and strike us to the core of who we are. On this Palm Sunday, so often set aside for celebration as children come parading into the sanctuary with palm branches as we say, Hosanna to the highest now, may we, Lord, stop and hear your voice. Speak to us today. Amen. With everything that has transpired over the past few weeks, I, I think it's appropriate that this text is what it is today. I do not want us to mourn over the fact that we cannot meet in person. It is sad, I get that, but I do not want us to mourn because in God's divine wisdom, he has given us something that we could never have experienced otherwise. 
You see, he has afforded us an opportunity to celebrate this day, this wonderful day, one of the days that we celebrate from a different perspective. In many ways, we are like lepers in biblical times. We cannot get close to each other. We cannot join together. We are outcasts, all of us. We all have this physical distance set between us. And while we can always talk about the unique hardships that lepers had, we now get to experience it firsthand. Because now we get to actually stand off at a distance to celebrate, to worship. We don't get to be close to one another. We don't get to be with all the people. We are stuck apart. And so this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, may we celebrate it far off and disconnected with the idea, the understanding that this is how lepers were. May it sink into our hearts more every time we read a story about Jesus cleansing a leper and why they celebrated. And may we also rejoice because we know that within God's kingdom, there are no lepers. There is no distance. Within God's kingdom, he heals all so that we can all be connected. And we can praise God for that. Just a little thought. Phineas and Ferb. If you have Disney Plus, my son went, <gasps> he loves it. Phineas and Ferb. If you have Disney Plus, watch it. It is hands down the best cartoon of all time. I love it. I love every bit of it. In case you don't know, it is about two brothers, their sister, their pet platypus, and their friends. They are on summer vacation, and they are trying their very best to make the most of it. And so they do everything to enjoy what they have. And so you have their brothers, Phineas and Ferb. They are mechanically inclined, and so they build things, whether it's a spaceship to go to the moon so they can have a dairy farm on the moon and make moon ice cream, or, or they create winter in summertime, or they make a roller coaster that spans throughout the entire city. Whatever it is, they build it so that they can make the most of their summer vacation. And their sister, well, she sees this as an opportunity to get them in trouble. She thinks what they're doing is reckless and dangerous, and so they want, she wants to tell her parents so that they get busted. And it never works out for her. She can never get the proof. Because every time she, she gets evidence, every time she gets her mom to come and look, she'll be like, look, mom, look, look. And then something unforeseen happens, and poof, it's gone. Well, within that show, they have many different phrases that they say, that they repeat. Um, and one of them was, well, I didn't see that coming. And I think that we can relate to that. We can relate to saying, well, I didn't see that coming. It doesn't take a global pandemic to make us say, huh, I didn't see that coming. Life seems to always try to take as many twists and turns as possible just to make us say, wow, where did that come from? And that's exactly what happened today 
in the text with the triumphal entry. Here comes the Messiah. Here comes the king. He's entering into the city of God, and all the people are happy. The disciples are saying, oh yeah, here it comes. He's going to set us free. The Roman Empire is going down. We're getting God's kingdom, and all the people are cutting down palm branches. They're throwing their coats on the ground, and they're saying, here comes our king. They're so excited. They're cheering. They're applauding. They're clapping their hands. And then they see what Jesus does. Because the text that we read is exactly what happens after he enters the city. And so they're still, they're, woohoo, yes, Jesus, we love this. We're so happy you're here. Save us. And their hands slowly stop clapping. Their shouts of a hosanna and praise turn to mumbling. And their faces get distorted as they try to figure out what is he doing as they think to themselves well we didn't see that coming the crowds were too quick to assume that they knew what jesus was going to do And so today, as we look at Palm Sunday, as we prepare for Easter, as we read this text, I want us to take a note. I want us to hold our applause. Before we get to the point where we're shouting and cheering and saying, yes, God's going to do this, may we stop. So that we can see actually what he is going to do. Christ came to die for the sins of the world. Christ came to die for us. Christ came to die for you. These words cannot be repeated enough. They are the crux of our foundation of faith. They are everything that we believe in. It's the whole reason we have any of this. It's because Christ came to die for you. That is the gospel truth. He did not enter the city to overthrow man-made structures. He did not come as king to be a king over man-made kingdoms. He came so that he might die on a cross as our sacrifice and then be raised again for our life. And he came so that his resurrection might overthrow a deeper evil, a a worse evil than anything else. More evil than the Roman Empire, more evil than Hitler, more evil than any of our politicians. The evil of sin and death. That is what he came to do. But the crowds missed that point because it was not glamorous. It was not something that they wanted to think about. You see, naturally, we don't want to follow people who appear weak. We want to follow people who appear strong. We want to follow people who have overcome, who have beat the odds, who have done everything possible to be the best. 
And so that's why at the beginning, Jesus had the crowd celebrating because they saw this prophet coming into town who had overcome all the religious leaders. Man, he's put all those Pharisees in their places, all those Sadducees, they, they go running for the hills because they're scared of Jesus. And so they're like, yes, he's the best. But then he submits. And that's when the crowds say, we don't want him anymore. We don't want to follow him. He's weak. He, he, he is captured by the Romans. He is beaten. He is tortured. He is killed. Why would we want to follow that? So when Jesus begins to move in a different direction, the people, they become confused a bit. They don't know what to make of his actions. And since they don't line up with what they expected, they begin to push back instead of accept it. And instead of holding their applause, instead of waiting to see what he was going to do at the end, they only assumed what they thought they wanted God to do and then it messed up all of their plans. And the moment they could not understand it, the moment that it was not what they wanted, the moment they did not get what they expected, he became unworthy to them. And their praise turned to condemnation. And so that's why we see here Jesus lamenting over the city. He says... You don't recognize the things that bring peace. Me coming and dying on the cross is what's going to bring you peace, not me coming as a king. The peace Christ was preparing for the world was so much farther reaching than a man-made kingdom. We've seen in our history how kingdoms rise and fall. They never last. And so the only way for him to bring eternal peace was to die for us. Christ crucified is the key to peace with God. So may we hold our applause until we can fully understand and appreciate what Christ is doing. May we not jump the gun and assume that we know the direction that he's going to go. Now it's tempting but we must hold ourselves back. We must not go before we get all excited about what Jesus is going to do. May we pause. Before Easter comes and we say, yes, Easter's coming, he's risen. We don't have to worry about it. The grave's empty. May we stop. Don't rush to Easter, but sit here. Sit here for just a bit and appreciate the preparation Christ makes for his sacrifice. And this, this sitting, this waiting, this holding our applause, it goes beyond just this Easter time. May we hold our applause for the things that happen within our world today. Christians, we see things happening. We, we hear of news around the world, and we automatically jump the gun. We start applauding. We say, yes, God's doing something. Whether it's good or bad, we, we just start saying, yeah, God. And we have no clue what he's doing. Whether it's right or wrong, a natural disaster comes, and we see it as God's divine judgment. 
someone is an elected official and we see him as our Savior. Before we even understand what God is doing and we're just cheering and saying, yes, God is so great. He's doing all this stuff and we're so excited. And then what happens if all of a sudden we figure out that's not the direction God was going? We end up being like the Jews where we say, wait a second. I thought you were supposed to do this, Jesus. I thought you were going to do that for us instead. How dare you not meet my expectations when I rushed to the conclusion before you told me what it was supposed to be? Stop and go back to Christ crucified. Sit under the teaching before you go on. Only once you fully understand the depth and breadth of what it means should you dare to move forward with anything else. Only once you can fully understand and appreciate what it means to have Christ crucified for your sins should you then begin to make any assumptions about what he's going to do in this world. Why is this important? Why would I then challenge us to such an impossible task? Because I don't think any of us can fully understand the depth and breadth of Christ crucified. It's one of the mysteries of the church. How can we possibly fully appreciate what it means to have our Savior die for us? So why would I challenge us to do this? Because if we don't subject ourselves to the laborious task of understanding Christ crucified, we will run into unforeseen circumstances that will be our demise. Jesus laments over Jerusalem here in the following verses, 43 and 44. Uh, he cries over God's chosen city, over God's chosen people, because they do not see, they do not understand. Judgment is coming for them, but they don't recognize the fact that God was trying to bring peace and salvation. And it's truly sad because they had every opportunity, more so than us. They had it so easy. They walked with Christ. They heard him teaching. They saw his miracles. They had everything at their hands to believe. And they didn't. They had no excuse, and yet they missed the whole point. Because of that, they were not prepared for what was going to happen next. They were not prepared for the fact that God might destroy his holy city. God might allow Jerusalem to fall. 30 years later, Jerusalem is a wasteland. Rome comes and destroys it. And the people weep, thinking God has somehow turned from them. When Jesus has been saying all along, this is going to happen. When we rush to a conclusion, we fail, we, we fall into the same trap. We have our minds made up on what we want God to do within our lives or within our world, within our workplaces, within our families. And then we believe we understand his purpose. And so then nothing else could ever be possible. Everything must happen within this. 
this has been proven throughout the church's history. We've seen the problems with empirical Christianity. In Roman times and then into the medieval ages, the church thought that they somehow needed to be conjoined with, with governmental power so that they could force everyone to believe in Christ. And that didn't work out so well. And they found out, hey, that, that's not going to work. And now with the downfall of public favor, Christianity has pretty much become non-existent in Europe. Europe is a drought of agnostics and atheists. The highest in ever recorded history of non-believers, people who do not want any religion whatsoever because of the empirical Christianity that was forced upon them because we thought that's what God wanted us to do. We thought that was the direction. We were cheering and saying, yes, we, we, can, we can join with the government and we can be all this great stuff. And it then came upon unforeseen circumstances and fell apart. The moment we rush to a conclusion on God's behalf is the moment we completely miss what is happening. And we end up putting all of our eggs into the wrong basket. Easter pun intended. Yet if we learn to hold our applause, to wait until after the triumphal entry, to wait and see where Christ is actually going, we get to see the bigger picture. And then we can accept the fact that we just might not actually understand what God is going to do in the world. And we wait for him to clarify it for us. And only by doing that then do we not run into these unforeseen circumstances. Think about the times in your life when you've simply assumed that you knew exactly what was going to happen. And so then you took action beforehand. Maybe it was, oh, I know I'm going to begin that race for work, so I went out and bought all this stuff because I knew I was going to get that money. And then you go in and your boss fires you instead. <laughs> that would be terrible. Um, I remember as a teen, I, I had a friend that I wanted to spend time with. And my parents were like, ah, we don't think you should. And like any good teen, I said, I want to. And I pushed and I pushed and I said, I just want to hang out with him. Can I go over to his house? Please, can I go over to his house? And my parents finally caved and said, fine, you can go. See, they weren't so sure that he was going to be a good influence. They weren't so sure that his home life was safe for me to be in. But I pushed back. I assumed that I knew better and I knew the way things were going to go and it was all going to be okay. I assume that it was. And then I ran into some unforeseen circumstances. One day, over at my friend's house, his much older brother comes home drunk and angry, which is not a good combination whatsoever. And my friend and I, we hide in his room to stay out of the way. And we begin to worry about what's going to happen because he's throwing stuff around the house, hitting things, punching things. Finally, we're able to get a phone back in the day before cell phones were really popular, if you can believe that. And I call my one sister, and I tell her what's going on, and I said, what should I do? And like any good sister, she hangs up on me. 
and calls my parents. Calls my parents, who are at a Bible study just a couple miles down the road from where my friend's house was. And my parents immediately come and pick me up. Against my will, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, because I didn't want to leave. I had no clue when I went over to his house that day that I was going to be in a very dangerous situation. And even more so, that was the last time I really ever hung out with that friend. Because my parents said, this is just not good. We want to protect you. And I thought that was totally unreasonable. I thought, how dare they keep me from this friend? But within a few short years, there is a stark difference between our lives. His grades slipped, he fell into the wrong crowd, and I honestly don't know if he graduated high school the same year as I did anymore. There's no telling what could have happened. My parents knew. They knew how that road worked out. Me being a teen, I I had never been down that road. I've never had those kind of friends, those kind of experiences, but they did. And they were trying to lead me somewhere else. And had I pushed back even harder, had I rebelled against them, who knows what unforeseen circumstances I would have continued to run into. Unforeseen circumstances can arise and mess up our lives. And yet, when we hold our applause, when we don't jump the gun and giving God all the praise because we think we know where he's going and what he's doing, when we suspend our own desires and our dreams to see what it is that God's actually doing, we can often save ourselves the heartache that comes when we just dive headfirst into situations. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, first things first. You put first things first. Do first things first. I want to modify that a bit. You see, when we hold our applause, when we wait and see what God's actually going to begin to do within our lives, within the world, and he he begins to then reorder our lives. He begins to correct everything that has gone in weird directions, and he begins to place Christ things first. And this is what happens here in Luke. You see in verses 45 through 47 here, uh, Jesus enters the temple and begins to drive out those who are selling things there. And he says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple. Jesus goes in, he starts flipping tables, starts whipping people. I'm not saying that we should start flipping tables and whipping people. It might get you in trouble. In fact, I'm pretty sure it will get you in trouble if you go around and start whipping people. However, I don't know how Jesus got away with it either, by the way. Like, that, that seems very odd to me. Like, he was so respected or so feared. I don't know which one that he could go around and do all this and not get in trouble, but whatever. But he was doing this because the temple had begun to look a lot more like pagan temples of other religions. It was no longer God's house because people were there. They were, they were exchanging money. They were selling animals. They were doing all these other practices that were keeping people from entering into worship with 
God. And so he puts Christ's things first. He clears out the temple. Now, a quick note on some of these things, because I know that there's been some misunderstandings over the years as to why some of this was bad. The exchanging of money and selling of the sacrificial animals was not necessarily bad in and of itself, you see. It was actually trying to meet a need because you had people coming from so far away that sometimes they couldn't bring their sacrifices with them. And so they had these things in place to help those people who were traveling far away. The problem became when some of the people began to extort others, cheated people out of the exchanging of money, selling them high-priced animals that were subpar sacrifices. That's when things began to be bad. It's not that they were trying to do something good. They were trying to make a quick buck off from all the people who were coming into the temple. That's the problem. That's what Jesus begins to throw tables about because they were desecrating God's house, trying to make a profit off from people who wanted to come and pray and to learn. And so that's where he goes and he begins to preach and teach people. Now, this idea of putting Christ's things first, do I need to really venture into how that impacts our lives and how we should place it within our lives? Probably not, but I'm going to anyways because, well, what kind of preacher would I be if I didn't? Um, <laughs> we are at zero hour, folks. We are at zero hour. In the next seven days, we are going to ride a roller coaster of emotions. We're going to have the high of the, the Last Supper and all the stuff that Christ is doing. And then we're going to have the fall of, of passion on Friday. And then we're going to have the joyous reunion of the resurrection. We're on a roller coaster. but we need to take time to absorb what's really going on. We need to take time to let it sink into our hearts. And if we do not stop and relish this moment and allow God to reorder our lives so that Christ's things are first, we are going to miss the key points of it. We're going to miss everything that he's trying to teach us. We hold our applause. We choose not to celebrate just yet because we want to prepare our hearts and our minds to accept the reality that is yet to take place. Now, if we've been doing our jobs, this entire Lent season has been to prepare us for that. If we've been sacrificing things within our lives and we've been spending more time in prayer and devotion, then our hearts should already be flipped over. Our, our minds should already be whipped into shape as God's been preparing us for this moment. But if we haven't, then now is the time. We don't jump to celebration until we fully can appreciate it. So we hold our applause to reorder our lives so that Christ's things are first. And so I challenge you this week, this holy week, to reflect on your life. See what is most important. Look as to how you spend your time, where you put your energy, where you put your money, where you put your focus and attention. There's many ways to do this, and I challenge you to do it this way. 
take a piece of paper, and for one day, write down everything you do, when you do it, and for how long you do it. Very simple, right? Very simple. Might be super crazy, but it's very simple. You wake up. I woke up at 6 a.m. I got dressed five minutes. I ate breakfast 30 minutes. I read my Bible 10 minutes. I played on Facebook three hours. This, by doing this, it allows you to see where you're actually putting your time because you might think, I have Christ things first. I have God reordered my life so that I'm focused on him. And then you look at the sheet and it'll tell you, wow, I spend way too much time playing Candy Crush. I don't even know what my children were doing for the past six hours. Or, wow, all I did was watch Netflix all day long. I didn't even touch my Bible. This will brighten your eyes a lot as to where you spend your time and your money. Your attention, your focus, your efforts, your energy, everything. And so do it. Then allow God to speak to you through it. May we not cheer today. May we not start applauding Christ as he enters the city like a king. Instead, may we pause and reflect on what truly is about to happen. May we open our hearts and our minds to the deeper work of Christ as we enter into this Passion Week. We must remember that this week is leading up to the death of our Savior. Do you yet understand that? His march into the city was not to gain worldly power, but to establish a heavenly kingdom. So hold your applause. Don't rush to celebrate something that Christ is not doing. Instead, may we wait to see what he is doing and allow God to reorder our lives so that Christ's things are placed first. Let us pray. Holy Father, we give you praise this day that your son entered the city that you call your own. But more importantly, we give you praise that he entered as a sacrifice, ready to die for us. May we hold our applause. May we not be found in the crowds cheering him as if we think he's some king that's going to overthrow everything we think we want. But may we stop and realize the depth of pain and sorrow he has taken upon himself for us. Prepare us this week, this holy week, as we prepare for what is to come. Work in our hearts, Lord. Reorder our lives. Flip over whatever tables you need to flip over in our lives. Whip whatever you need to whip within our lives so that we might be reordered to be Christ first. May we hold our applause until we can see and understand what it is that you are doing within our lives. God of salvation, 
We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came in your name and turned the lonely way of rejection and death into triumph. Grant us the steadfast faith to enter the gates of righteousness, that we may receive grace to become worthy citizens of your holy realm. Amen. I now send you out into your community, social distancing in mind, to make Christ-like disciples. Go in the grace of God.